memorized what was called the Paul Brown letter, which was basically evangelistic sermon. And there were illustrations there that we had to memorize to be able to use when we were talking to people. Of course, we learned how to use the four spiritual laws. Y'all familiar with the four spiritual laws? And we used to go door to door and take surveys. And we're here to take a religious survey, and we'd ask them questions. And then we would transition into the four spiritual laws. And hopefully people would stand there, and we would page through the four spiritual laws with them. That was evangelism back then. There was a general belief that God existed, generally speaking. There was kind of, well, you, you, many of you probably remember back in our public schools, we used to sing Christmas hymns in public schools. Mm-hmm. And we used to have nativity scenes in public schools. And we used mm-hmm. to have Christmas programs yeah. in public schools. Yeah. Ain't that way no more. And evangelism has totally changed. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you enjoy just a good heart-to-heart conversation? You can do evangelism. You can do evangelism. And that's what we're going to be talking about today and for the next two weeks. Evangelism has totally changed, especially with the younger generation. And I know we have kids and grandkids, and some of us may have great-grandkids. And as those younger people are growing up, things are totally different than what they used to be. Now that other word, apologetics, what I want you to do is open your Bible to 1 Peter. That's just before 2 Peter. And right after Hebrews and James. Now I want you to turn to chapter 3. And I'd like a volunteer to read verse 15. Here's our volunteer dedication, whatever you want. 315, 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Thank you. Now what was the first word again? But. Ah. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that word in just a moment. But the, the word that, that he talked about is give an answer, make a defense. That in the, the Greek language is the word, now listen to this, and think of an English word that this sounds like. Apologia. What does that sound like? Apology, apologize. And that's where we get the, the word from. And it's not that we are apologizing for our faith, but it's the idea of giving an answer, making a defense for the hope that is within you. And that's what it says with the the hope that is within you. Now just a a quick uh, a quick bit of of context here. Notice that it starts, it said with the word but. Now those of us who know a little bit of grammar know that if it says but, that's a contrast of something else, right? That it, that's not just a complete thought. That's a part of a fuller thought. And verse 14, let me read verse 14, because that leads right into 15. Who's going to read verse 14? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. 
Do not be frightened. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and always be ready to make the defense. So the context here is persecution and intimidation. And we could do a whole study on the book of 1 Peter because the background is the church was being persecuted, they were being burned at the stake, they were being fed to lions, and this whole book of 1 Peter explains to us how we are to respond to persecution and the types of things that we're beginning to face as believers in this country. So that's a whole different study. You can read it. You can look at it within that context and see how we are to respond. But the point is, always be ready to make a defense or give an answer for the hope that is within you. Now, again, the context is, as you are being persecuted, as you're being discriminated against, and as you are responding biblically to that persecution, people are going to say, wow, there's something different about you. What's the difference? Now you're ready to make a defense and say, here's the difference. So that's the idea of an apologetic. Give a reason. Give an answer. Make a defense for the hope that is within you. And what we're going to be seeing, as I've already said, is, well, let me, let me say it this way. A couple weeks ago, I was in Kenya doing uh, two back-to-back identical apologetic seminars. And the guy that was hosting me, when they were all over, he said, Steve, I thought that to do apologetics, you'd have to be able to debate atheists and you'd be, a, you'd be able to debate scientists mm-hmm. and Muslims, mm-hmm. debating the Christian faith and creation and evolution, and that's just kind of intimidating to think about. But then at the end of the weekend, he said, but you know, you made me understand that any of us can do apologetics, and we really can. When you think about in the New Testament, who were the first apologists making a defense, giving a reason, giving an answer? They were fishermen, pretty common people. And so any of us can be prepared to give an answer. And that's what I want us to be talking about for the next three weeks. Let's see. That should supposed to work. It was working yesterday, but we'll try a different one. Okay, don't be that way. Chuck can tell you that was working just fine yesterday. <coughs> there it is. I don't know what I did, but I did something. So we want to start with an introduction from the book of Romans. And you're familiar with these verses. They have been verses that have we've been talking about for the last several years. But in starting in verse 18, and I'm not going to read all 14 and 15 of these verses, but it starts out by saying the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident within them. And then he goes on, these things were known from creation, they knew God, verse 21, but they did not honor him, they became futile. 
professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God, verse 23, for an image of the form of corruptible man, verse 24. Therefore, and this is the point, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts of impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed for every man. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desires towards one another and so forth. And we see that happening in our in our society. Mm-hmm. And then verse 24, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And it goes, goes on, and then towards the end, verse 32, And although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. We're talking about the we pray for the government. And not only do we see the morality in this country going right down the drain, but we have a government that's approving it, that's celebrating it, that's promoting it. Exactly what we're talking about here in Romans chapter 1. And of course, that was written back in the time of the Roman Empire. But the principle is the same. If you abandon God, this is the result. And we're getting what is the natural result of a country that abandons God. But that's where we're living. That's where we're living. So let's see if that's a work this time. Hey, thank you very much. So America is feeling the effects of turning its back on God. We see it in our sexual revolution, environmentalism, where they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Homosexuality is now mainstream. And there's every form of depravity that you can imagine. And then it's even Celebrated. Oh, we've got that. that oh, what's going on there? But that's what it is, right there. The gravity is being celebrated. So, what do we do about it? How do we respond? America's culture is in decline. What are we to do? Back during the BLM riot a few years ago, I don't know about you, but it just seemed like everything was was just on fire that's almost literal and i was having people call me and say steve how do how do we deal with this i mean what are we supposed to think about this what's going on in our country and god brought to mind the serenity prayer my dad carried this in his wallet to the time that uh, he passed away i was only 17 at the time but we look at that and what does that first part say? God grant me the serenity to accept what? The things I can't change. The things I can't change. There's very little going on in our culture today that we have any power of changing. We can pray. 
But when you get right down to it, besides elections and prayer, there's not a whole lot we can do. And so what does what the prayer say? Give me the courage to accept it. But then what is are the, the serenity, the serenity, the calmness? I have, I tell my friends, I have what I call a serenity it's a mental serenity bucket. And everybody says, can you believe that? I take it and I put it in my serenity bucket. I can't believe it, it's horrible, but there's not anything I can do about it. Can you believe that? Serenity bucket. A serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. But what does it say? The courage to do what? Change the things I can. That should be the focus. To be involved in things that we can change. Now, what are those things? And that's key. Before we get there, God also reminded me of the, the book of Habakkuk. Do you remember that story, that book? At the beginning of the, the prophecy of Habakkuk, He's talking to the Lord. He said, Lord, can you see the violence in our streets? And God says, yeah, I can see it. And I'm going to send the Chaldeans to come and to take you into captivity. And Habakkuk's response is, what? They're more wicked than we are. And he said, I know, they'll get theirs eventually. You're getting yours now. And in Habakkuk went back and forth with the Lord for over two chapters and finally, at the end of it, is that famous portion of Scripture. He makes my feet like hinds feet in high places. And the verses before that says, no matter what happens, there may be no fruit on the vine, there may be no cattle in the field, but he makes my feet like hinds feet in high places. And so Habakkuk, after he got God's mindset in this envisioned himself being on that mountaintop looking down at what was going on knowing that nobody could reach him the serenity of accepting the things that I cannot change so he was at peace knowing that God was doing what God was doing but then what focus on what we can impact or what can we impact I'd like to look at Jude chap verses chapters Verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord, Jesus Christ, to eternal life. So that's, that's the foundation. But notice this. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even their garment polluted by the flesh. So here's what I believe we need to think about. We need to think about focusing on the some and the others in our life. We can't change the macro. We can pray, we can vote, but when you get right down to it, we have very little opportunity to barely have power over that. But yet there are the some and the others all around us that we can be focusing on. And so what I want to talk about is what that means when you're focusing on the some and the others that God has put you in touch with.
because that's where the focus needs to be. They're our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our network, if you want to use that term, people that we associate with. Those are the ones where we ought to be focusing our attention. What a, and they just study this, and, and I do a lot of listening and reading to podcasts and books. It still comes down to the key role of parents. The key role of parents. And grandparents. And the influence that we have on our children. And even something that I've heard fairly recently in a couple of different studies, the influence of the dad, the father in the home, is preeminent. Moms and dads are both essential, but because God has placed the man as a leader at the home, it just seems that his, his leadership in all areas is crucial when it comes to raising up a godly generation. And grandparents. If your parents, if you're interested, there's a website promisetoamericasparents.org and you might go there and just look it over. But what about grandparents? Grandparents have a role as well. Deuteronomy 4.9 says that we are to make known that we are to make known the things of God to our sons and our grandsons. Deuteronomy 6.2 has some instruction that says, so that our sons and our grandsons would fear the Lord, obviously speaking of the granddaughters as well. Psalm 78, 4 through 6 speaks of the greatness of God to tell the generations to come. 2 Timothy 1, 5, faith of mothers and grandmothers. I'd like to point this out that uh, when I'm in Africa and we're, we're helping the, the pastors there understand what God says about the pastor position. In 1 Timothy 2, it says, I do not, Paul's writing, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. And he goes on to talk about the qualifications of an elder slash pastor, the husband of one wife. And we just say that in God's design, God has placed the man to be in the pastoral role. And there's roles for women, but it's not the pastor of the church. So you'll get always get, well, where does the woman fit into this? And I turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, that is speaking of the faith of Timothy. And Paul writes, the faith that was first in your mother and your grandmother. And just the role that, that moms and grandmoms have in the lives of children as they're growing up is critical. It's critical. And so there's another organization, uh, Legacy Coalition, that is just for grandparents. And they have a weekly video, they have a weekly uh, video podcast, whatever you want to call it, that you can sign up for. And they're giving instructions to grandparents as how to have a relationship with your grandkids. The Legacy, because they even have seminars and conferences for grandparents. And then a new one that I've just become aware of is the The Think Institute. It's kind of an interesting link there, but that is it. Uh, www.thethink.institute. 
This is primarily an apologetics uh, podcast for men, for dads, and how to be the spiritual leader in your home and, a- and answer the questions that your kids may be bringing to you. So these are resources for parents, grandparents, and then the husband, the head of the home. Also, Jesus said, what are the two great commandments? Love God and love who? Your neighbor. And when you do a study of that, your neighbor, you're in, in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's interesting that there was the, there was the one in need and the Samaritan came by and, and met that need, and it said that the Samaritan was the neighbor. So there seems to be an implication there that, that as we're loving our neighbors, that's just anybody that comes across our path. It's not just the person next door, but it's anybody that comes across our path. And here's just another little thing that, to, to think about, is when it comes to voting, and this is a new insight, a new thought to me. When it comes to voting, and we're wanting to vote in godly people and, and, and godly laws, somebody might say, well, no, that's, that, you're not, not like trying to legislate morality. But if we love our neighbor, and if we know moral laws benefit our neighbor, whether they know it or not, we are loving our neighbor by vote, trying to vote in morality into our love. So that is a loving thing to do. So engaging the some and the others. Some principles. Ephesians 6. Finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength put on the full armor of God. The tactics of the devil. This is talking about spiritual warfare and reminding here that we war against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces evil in the heavens, for our battle is not against flesh and blood. What does that tell us? Spiritual. It is, but what does that say about our neighbor? They are not what? They're not the enemy. They're not the enemy. Mm-hmm. They're not the enemy. Mm-hmm. But against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. Our neighbor's not our enemy. That gay person is not our enemy. The transgender person is not our enemy. Then 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20, it says that we have a ministry of reconciliation, and then towards the end, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Think of an ambassador of a country. What's their role? Their role is to represent their nation to another nation. How they speak, how they live, how they conduct themselves is a part of being an ambassador. Same thing with us. The way we speak, the way we live, how we conduct ourselves is part of being an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially those who belong to the household of faith, but the good of all. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making most of the time your speech should always 
be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to you should answer each person. It's always gracious, seasoned with salt. As we talk to other people, we should always be kind. And we've already seen this, but at the end of verse 16, in verse 16, after he says to be ready to give a defense, give an answer, however, do this with what? Gentleness and respect. No matter who we're talking about, no matter what stage of life they're in, no matter what they're doing with their gender, we're to treat them with gentleness and respect. The Lord's slave must not quarrel, but be gentle, able to teach, meaning know the scripture, and be patient instructing his opponents with what? Gentleness. There it is again. Here's lessons from Paul's engagement. We read part of Romans chapter 1. And what we have to understand is that was an in-house discussion. In other words, he was speaking to other followers of Christ in the Roman church. As I'm speaking to you today, and we can, we can talk about the fact that this culture has abandoned God and is literally going to hell. But we wouldn't say that to an unbeliever. That's an in-house discussion. But in Acts chapter 17, Paul went to uh, a Greek audience in Athens, and he had a conversation, or he engaged the culture directly, and, and this gives us some ideas. He starts from where they are. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews with those who worship God and in the marketplace every day with, with those who happen to be there, then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with them. So they were arguing with him. He was reasoning with them. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn about this new teaching that you're speaking of? For what you say sounds strange to us. And we want to know what these ideas mean. Hmm. Now all the Athen Athenians and the, foreign and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every aspect. That was a good thing. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed. Then he introduces the new thought. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So now he's making a transition. And he builds the bridge. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands, 
Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. For one man, he has made every nation, for one man, he has made every nation of men to live all over the earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. So that they might seek God. And he goes on from that. And then uh, he mentions right there in the middle, underlined, as even some of your own po poets have said. So he's trying to find connection with them. For we are also his offspring, being God's offspring. Then he shouldn't think that the, the divine, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human heart and imagination. So you can see he acknowledges their religiosity. He talks a little bit about their own writers, their poets. He tries to make a connection. Then he goes on from there. And then finally he confronts confronts them and invites them and having overlooked the times God now commands all the people everywhere to repent and so forth. So he starts very simply as this conversation. He's reasoning with them. They're arguing with him. He acknowledges their religion then he transitioned into truth. When they heard the resurrection so on and so forth. But what if people aren't religious? What if they don't believe in God or have a very, whatever you want to call, nonchalant view of God? By the way, that reminds me. One study, well, a book that I read was describing this younger generation. And here's how the author reduced it down to four points. And this is, this is where our culture is at. The younger generation, by and large, uh, you get my, my thinking going here. Feelings are the ultimate truth. How they feel about something is the ultimate truth. Happiness is the ultimate pursuit. Judging is the ultimate sin. In other words, this is how I feel. This is what I'm pursuing. You pursue what you want to pursue. I'll pursue what I want to pursue. Pursue, you don't judge me, I won't judge you. And God is the ultimate guess, G-U-E-S-S. Well, where does God fit into all this? I don't know. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. This is how I feel. Happiness is my pursuit. Don't judge me. I don't know if God exists. So that's what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with. So what do we do? If they have negative feelings towards Christianity. Today, the younger generation, the questions are not as much as Christianity true, but is Christianity good? Because it's this feel good generation, and they hear the stories of the Old Testament, where the Israelites were to wipe out all the Canaanites, but what kind of a God would do that? What kind of a God would send anybody to a fiery hell for eternity? So is this God really a good God? And those are the kind of questions that are being asked today that we need to be prepared to deal with. So, have a conversation, just like Paul did. That's why I began by saying, if, if you like conversations, you can be an evangelist, you can be an apologist. So how to make difficult conversations better? 
Here's principle number one. My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to what? Slow to what? And slow to anger. Be quick to hear. What does that imply? Listen. We are so quick to want to talk. We need to learn to listen. The nature of good conversations must be there must be a willingness to listen. Ask questions and try to determine where we differ. What did these do? Why did these differences exist? Pursue mutual understanding, then move into assessment. Understand why the person has a different opinion, con concern, or priority. We call this active listening. In other words, when you begin to have a conversation, and you can think of any any type of individual you want, an atheist, you could talk about a homosexual, you could talk about a transgender, I don't care who you're talking about, what category these principles apply. Listen. Try to understand why they've come to this place, how they came to this place what they were influenced by. And active listening, so often as we are listening, especially in this realm of some of us who are more, maybe more critically, critical thinkers than others, is you're immediately reading, okay, this is what I'm gonna say, this, as soon as they stop and take a breath, this is what I'm gonna say, and this is what I'm gonna say. That's not, that's not active listening. Active listening is asking questions and until you can until we can repeat back to them what they're thinking and what they're feeling where they say yeah that's what i'm talking about we haven't listened completely people want to be heard and by listening and try to understand where the person is coming from what the, what their authority they're leaning on just everything that we can about their situation that's listening and that's where it begins good conversations when discussions become challenging become more curious as to why the person thinks differently than you without trying to predict where the other person's head is at just try to understand let them speak and receive their responses as sincere. Believe the best about the responses, not about their lifestyle, not about their beliefs, but try to believe that what they're telling you is sincere. And avoid dismissing what is being said by assuming a negative motive. So, so it's so easy to, to start thinking through, well, really, this is what their motive is, this is what's in their heart, we don't know what they're doing. All we know is what they're verbalizing. And so don't run off and start attributing motive when we don't know the motive. <clears throat> Be curious and ask questions, not to defeat the other person, and that's what I was just talking about, but to move toward mutual understanding about why you disagree 
or where the differences in the tension points are. You need to understand where the tension points really are before you can get into that. And then work to understand before asserting. And that's why I said we so quickly wanted to launch into the answer, launch into the debate, launch into the defense until we truly understand where the person is coming from and what it is that they truly believe. And sometimes what they are verbalizing is on the surface, but what they're feeling is beneath the surface. And I, just a quick example might come to mind. This is not premeditated, but maybe they hate God. So that's the concept of God. Could be they had a terrible father. So on one surface, they're talking about one thing. On another surface is why they had that view. So we try to understand those things so that we know when we get deeper into the conversation, we're really addressing the real issue. Learn to accurately paraphrase in the different difficult moments in a way that assures your conversational party that you understand them. I already mentioned that. Recognize that it is possible to move towards someone and yet disagree with them. Remember the word be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In other words, you can have a relationship with somebody that you're polar opposites in what you believe. You can still have a relationship with that person. And our goal, one of our goals in this, is not to win the argument, but it's to win the person. You could get into a discussion with somebody, you could be absolutely right, you could nail their argument to the wall, and they'll never speak to you again. But you want to have a conversation in such a way that the door is always left open for further conversation with gentleness and respect. Thank you of conversations that I have had uh, a younger couple who, did you know that 65 to 70% of the young people who grow up in a Christian home go to church regularly when they get out of the home, they leave the church? I was speaking to one of those couples few months ago and just trying to find out why that's all I wanted to know was why what has led to this and so some of it was the goodness of God some of it was science that the guy had learned in school but then I mentioned this and I said what the studies are saying is that one of the main reasons is because the younger generation has been told what to believe by their parents and their Sunday school teachers, but they have never been taught or told why to believe it. There's a difference. What to believe? Mom, Dad, Pastor, why should I believe that? Are we doing a good job of explaining the why, not just the what? And I said, does that relate to you? And said, yeah. And I said, here's, here's, and so I'm just trying to find common ground. And not, and I said, here's an assignment for you. Go ask your parents why you should believe that the truth claims of Christianity are true. And there's an assignment for you. And uh, the guy said, I know what my dad would say. 
forward. What's that? Because Jesus changed my life. That sounds good, but a Mormon can say the same thing. A Buddhist can say the same thing. So that didn't work. So we need to have, and we're going to, before we're finished in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about some of the why. Acts of sabotaging conversations, quick confession with a pivot point. Well, there's hypocrites in the church. Well, I know it, but there's hypocrites everywhere. We don't want to do that. Your politicians do that all the time. Well, look what your candidate said. Oh, yeah, well, you're just doing the same thing. We hear that all the time. We don't want to do that in our conversations. We don't want to make a quick pivot and say, well, your side is just as bad or worse. Or using politically, I almost changed that to uh, emotional. But politically charged terms like racist, fascist, progressive, socialist, Marxist. And there are other types of terms that we can use as it's like pouring gas on the fire. We need to be careful what terminology we're using in our discussions with people. <clears throat> Assigning motive, I've already talked about that. We don't know people's motive. We only know what they're saying. Only God knows the heart. Refusing to acknowledge that your side also has problems. Now sometimes you get into a discussion and somebody will say, I, and I, I'm not going to try to think of an illustration right now, but they'll they'll point about they'll point at something in a Christianity truth claim that maybe is a little hard to deal with. Even for those of us who study those things, be willing to say, well, you know, that's a good point. That is a tough. That is a good question, and that's something that that I need to do more study on. Don't be afraid to say that. Suggestions, be a gardener. What's a gardener? Well, you think about uh, the sower parable, and it says the sower goes out and sows the seed, and some of the seed falls on different types of soil, and some is one, one out of four bears fruit. But think about this. Here's an experienced gardener, sower, a dad, and here's the five-year-old son just learning, and the dad is teaching the son to sow seed, and the dad is very precise. He's done this for years and years and years. And the five-year-old comes out there and he's doing this. The seed's going everywhere. What's the common denominator? The seed that lands on what? Good soil. If you sow enough seed, some of that seed is going to land on good soil. Another point of being a gardener, there's a guy that I listen to a lot. He's about my age, and uh, he's been doing this a long time. And when he makes this statement, those of us who are very evangelical, we go, <gasps> he will readily admit that he has never been in the presence of somebody where the person has said, yes, Greg, I want to receive Christ right now and has, has quote, prayed the prayer or repeats like that moment. He says, that's never happened in my life. And we go, <gasps> but he says, but I have had people come to me often and say, Greg, you know that conversation we had a year ago, two years ago, that really got me thinking? 
and now I'm a follower of Christ. So he talks about planting seeds. He talks about putting a stone in people's shoes that kind of makes them feel uncomfortable about what they are living by. So be a gardener. Don't feel like you have to get to the bottom line and seal the deal every time you talk with somebody. Just have conversations. Get to know them. Plant seeds. Have you thought about... Stay on the offensive by asking questions. 1 Peter 3.15 talks about making a defense. It sounds like we're always on the defensive. We don't need to be on the defensive. We can turn the tables very, very easily on somebody who is challenging that challenging us. And somebody somebody may have a may have an assertion and there's some term. Well, what do you mean by that? Uh, heard an illustration one time of person was wearing a pendant with uh, whatever those demonic type symbols are. Uh, I can't think of what, what they're called. But said, hey, I noticed your necklace. What does that mean to you? Just, why do you wear it? You know, what does that mean? And just start the conversation. What do you, what do you, what do you mean by that? And it's just, this is part of getting to know people. As you know, there's tattoos everywhere. I haven't done this yet, but I know young pastors who they'll say a tattoo and they'll say, hey, that's a good tattoo, good looking tattoo you've got there. What does it mean? What do you want? Tell me, tell me a little bit about it. it. It opens up a conversation. And that's hard to do. That's how, I've not done it. But I've heard more than one person go go into a restaurant and their server will come up and say, hey, that's a good looking whatever. And it just, it opens a conversation and, and where does that come from? And what, what got you thinking about that? And, and why that and not something else? Just to understand. How did you come to that conclusion? In other words, where did you start? And how, what brought you to where you are? What are your sources of authority? Years ago, back in the 90s, I was doing a local TV show. It was just cable access, local network. But it went all around Washington County. And every month, we'd have a live show. And we'd deal with different topics. And the and very often, somebody would have, have make an assertion. They would call in live. And I would ask them, well, what's your source of authority? Where do you get this information from? My source of authority is scripture. What's your source of authority? And be sure to leave the door open for further conversations. And then I've already shared some of the examples. So just in conclusion, I put Caleb up there because this is kind of my testimony uh, a few years ago. I just turned 75 in my ministry, International Training and Ministries, were turning this over to another younger guy to take the ministry to the next level. But I said, God, Caleb was 85 when he came out of the wilderness and said, he said, God, I'm 85 and I'm as strong as I've ever been and I want that hill country. Well, this whole area of apologetics is my hill country. And I said, God, I want at least five more active years. We just had a couple of apologetic seminars in Kenya. 
Yesterday I did an online worldview presentation, had some other things coming up. So this is primarily with the younger generation. So that, that Caleb's my new hero. Esther, you look at 14.4 and it says, could it be that it, it, this is your time, a time like this? Caleb has his time, Esther had her time. And God has put all of us right here in this time and this place. A lot of gray hair, not completely, but a lot of gray hair, even some non long hair in this room. But we're in this place, we're in this time, as godless as it is, God has chosen to put us here in this moment for a purpose. And he's not done with any of us yet. So this is just the beginning of what we want to be talking about this week and the next couple of weeks is how to have conversations, how to build relationships. And before we get down, we're going to be looking at some of the, the big topics and how to be able to have conversations about those topics. Father, we thank you as godless as our country has become. You have chosen to put us right here, right now, and you want to use us to reach some the sums and the others in our network. And so, Lord, help us to accept the things that we cannot change, but the courage to change the things that we can and the wisdom to know the difference. And then equip us. Give us boldness. Give us a willingness just to strike up a conversation, to ask questions, to get to know people. That we can be effective ambassadors for you. In Jesus' name, amen.